0: you for being here today. If you're watching us online, thank you for joining us. Or if you're in our overflow room, and I would like to welcome our visitors. We know we have many who are here for parent-child dedication, and so thank you so much Uh, for being with us today. In 2019, a Facebook user wrote about an experience that he had that week when he drove to his office trying to find a space in the parking lot that morning before work. Uh, The lot was already full and he drove around and drove around and finally he saw someone getting into their car to leave. And so he pulled up quickly and he put on his blinker indicating that he would pull into that space once they pulled out. Finally, they pulled out, they pulled away, but before he could turn into that particular space, another car came uh, zipping around, pulled into that space, and took the space that he was waiting on. He honked his horn, he rolled his window down. As the guy got out of the car, he said, hey, couldn't you see that I was waiting on that space? The guy just shrugged his shoulders and then gave a very rude hand signal to the man who was waiting on the space and walked off and walked into the office complex. This man was angry, he was mad, but what could he do? He drove around the parking lot for a while longer until he finally found an empty spot. He parked in that spot, he went into the office, he took the elevator up to his office, and he talked to his assistant and said, what's my first appointment for the day? And she said, it is to interview a candidate for the job that we have posted. I will bring him in now. And just as you might have guessed, the candidate was the guy who had given him your number one symbol uh, just a few minutes before. So he posted this on Facebook. And as you can imagine, there were lots of likes and loves and smiley faces and lots of comments about, hey, did you hire him? Did you hire him and just give him grief for you know, the next several weeks? Did you, you know, immediately turn around? What did you do? All these comments, but a lot of the comments were related to the word Karma. Isn't that karma? Ain't that karma? That's just like karma. What comes around goes around. Boy, that guy got what was coming to him. We look at something like that and we call it karma, but karma is not a biblical concept. Uh, In fact, the Bible says that God is a very personal God and karma is an impersonal force. Karma doesn't care who you are, what your motivations are, why you did what you did. It's just a force It's like gravity. Gravity doesn't care who you are or why you tripped. If you trip, you're going to fall because of gravity, because it's a law. Karma is this impersonal law or force. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that there is a God who has numbered the hairs on your head and who loves you more than you can imagine. And so what happens to you in life is within the will of a sovereign God who loves you. However, we don't call it karma, but the Bible does support the idea very clearly that our consequences have actions. The verse that spells this out for us so very clearly is Galatians 6, 7. Here's what we read in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. There are three parts to this verse. The first is do not be deceived. Some translations say, do not be misled. Do not be misled by what others tell you, Do not be misled by the philosophies of the world. Do not be misled by your own flesh. Do not think that you will get away with it. Do not tell the lie to yourself that yes, it's happened to everybody else, but I'll be okay. Others have suffered, but I'll manage it. I'll manage the consequences. The first thing is do not be deceived. The second sentence is, God cannot be mocked. That word mocked, that's the only time it appears in the New Testament. And it literally means to turn your nose up at something, to show contempt for something. It's the same thing like when you serve your kids broccoli for dinner, they turn up their nose, they show contempt for the broccoli. That is the picture here. You cannot do that to God. Here's specifically what it means. You cannot say, God, I don't care what you say. I don't care what your laws are. I don't care what you say is right and wrong. I'm turning my nose up at that. I'm showing contempt for that. So do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. And then finally, a man reaps what he sows. Here's the principle that Paul, the writer of this verse, gives a man reaps what he sows. Now, most of us don't quite get this. We, we're not in an agrarian society, and so it's a little bit lost on us. We think food comes from Publix or Kroger. That's where you get fruits, and that's where you get vegetables. But for most of human history, people have lived close to the food that they ate. And so this phrase was very clear. They understood it very clearly. What you sow, you reap. If you sow watermelon seeds, you will not get bananas. It's just a principle, it's a rule. If you go out there expecting bananas, you will be shocked. If you sow watermelon seeds, you will get watermelons. And that's what Paul is saying in this verse. There is this principle that what you reap, you will sow. And if you sow a lifestyle, that disobeys God's word, you cannot expect God's blessings. That's like sowing watermelon seeds and expecting to get bananas. It just will not happen. So Paul here says, don't lie to yourself. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived by the world. God cannot be mocked. You cannot turn up your nose. You cannot show contempt for God's laws. What you you sow in life, that you will reap. Now, that sounds a lot like karma. Now, what you put out there in the world, you will get back. But here's the difference. God is a very personal God who has numbered the hairs on your head, who loves you incredibly so. And so, yes, what you reap, you will sow. What you sow, you will reap. But God who loves you does it out of discipline like a loving father. Like a father who looks at his son and says, I do not want you going down that path. You have disobeyed my laws and you're headed down the wrong path. And so what does a good loving father do? He warns his kids. He warns his son, quit, no further, don't do that. And so this is our rule number one this morning. Our rule number one is always heed God's warnings. When God starts flashing that yellow light, when God puts up the big sign that says warning, you're headed in the right direction, we are wise to heed those warnings. The passage that Ryan read for you earlier is a story about an individual who fails to heed the warnings of God. It is also a story that contains an individual that many of you know If you grew up going to church, you grew up going to Sunday school, you heard the stories of Daniel. You heard the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel lived about 500 years before Christ. Daniel was a young teenager uh, who lived in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in 586 B.C. Daniel, along with many other Jews, was then taken back to Babylon, and Daniel served as a slave in the royal palace. The king that he served under the longest was a king named Nebuchadnezzar, and he served for a number of years under Nebuchadnezzar. Then Nebuchadnezzar died, and his son in law named Nabonidus became king. But Nabonidus had this weird, weird devotion to the moon god Sin, S-I-N, just like it sounds. And so he decided to leave Babylon and to take this spiritual retreat uh, to an area that was south of Babylon. And for months and months and months, he was gone. So his son, Belshazzar, became the acting king. And Belshazzar is the central character in this story And a man that we learn a lesson from about what happens when we fail to heed God's warnings. Chapter 5 is divided into six different scenes. Uh, Scene 1 is the sin, specifically the sin of Belshazzar. Here is how that chapter begins. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and he drank wine with them. Uh, this was something that was very common in the Babylonian Empire, and the Persian Empire. These kings would throw these massive parties um, that would go on for days and days and days. The most famous of these was King Xerxes of the Persians. If you've ever seen the movie 300, about the 300 Spartans who defend their land against the invading Persian army, King Xerxes threw the most famous of these. It was a party that lasted for 180 days. 180 days is no longer a party. That's called a lifestyle, if it goes that long. These parties were famous. And so Belshazzar throwing a party was not unusual at all. What was unusual was the fact that Babylon was being invaded by the Medes and the Persians. Uh, They were inside the city walls, but just outside those city walls, these armies were marching towards Babylon And Belshazzar decides to throw a party. Why in the world would he do that? Well, a couple of reasons. One, he was not the real king. He was the acting king. And so he needed needed to solidify support from all of these nobles behind him as king to be able to fight against the Medes and the Persians. The other issue was they had these invading armies and he needed them to commit their forces to him to be able to fight against, uh, to fight against these armies that were coming against Babylon. That still begs the question. You have armies marching against your city. Why do you throw a big party for a thousand nobles and all sit around and get drunk? Like, why do you do that when there is this battle right outside your door? It is because they believed the city of Babylon was impregnable, much like the Titanic was unsinkable. They believed there was no way any enemy could get through their city walls. The walls of Babylon were 40 feet high and 25 feet thick. They could actually ride chariots on top of the walls all around the city. Babylon was about 15 acres. Uh, Most importantly, the Euphrates River ran through the city of Babylon, which gave the people a water supply, and that water running through the city also ran around the walls and created a 30-foot moat around the walls of Babylon. They believed that with the moat, with these thick, high walls, that there was no way that any enemy could get through their walls, and they could throw a party while the enemy was just outside of the walls of Babylon. Okay, so here's where things get interesting. Verse 2. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, these were sacred items. These were religious articles that were used by the Jews in their worship of God when Nebuchadnezzar invaded and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So it's at this point in the story that King Belshazzar gets what is just the most harebrained idea. And and why he does this, we don't know. It could have been that he had one too many glasses of wine at this point. It could have been he was just trying to show off at the party, you know, trying to impress his peers or the nobles that were around. Most likely, the, the issue that drove him to do this was the fact that he was tired of hearing how great Nebuchadnezzar was. Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather and Nebuchadnezzar was the king who ruled over Babylon for the longest and during the heyday of Babylon. And he heard over and over again, perhaps even at this party, remember how great we were under Nebuchadnezzar? Remember how powerful Babylon was under Nebuchadnezzar? Remember how we invaded all these other cities? Remember how we were the powerful force around under the great Nebuchadnezzar? And after hearing this over and over and over, Belshazzar says, that's it. I'm tired of hearing about Nebuchadnezzar. And so we ask a slave about the articles that had been taken from the temple in Jerusalem. And the slave says, oh yeah, we've got them. These gold goblets, they're back there, but no one has ever touched these gold goblets. They are sacred. No one wants to upset the God of the Jews. So they've just been left back there. Belshazzar says, even the great Nebuchadnezzar was too scared to use these goblets. Yeah, even Nebuchadnezzar would not touch the goblets. Then have those goblets brought in. We are going to drink to the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and stone. We're going to drink to our gods out of the goblets that were used by the Jews in their temple. And so they bring the goblets in, they pour wine in all of the goblets, and they raise their glasses up to their gods. And then here is where the story really takes an interesting turn. Scene two is the warning. Verse five. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So they pour the wine into the goblets. They all raise their glasses to toast their gods. And then just as they bring the goblets to their lips, all of a sudden Belshazzar looks and he looks at the faces of all of their guests, all of his guests, and he sees that they have dropped their goblets and their jaws have dropped as well. He turns and he looks and on the wall beside him is a disembodied hand writing on the wall at first he thinks maybe he is so drunk that he is seeing things that he is having some kind of some kind of hallucination but then he thinks wait a second what are the chances that I'm having the exact same hallucination that all my guests at the party are having at the same time and at that moment what he he realizes that what he sees is real the bible says it's Face turns pale that the blood drains out of his face and that his knees become, his legs become so weak that his knees begin to knock together. I don't know what the record is for someone going from drunk to sober would be, but this would have to be the fastest. And about a millisecond, he goes from three sheets to the wind to sober as a judge. Here's the next scene. Scene three. The deliberation. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So clothed in purple would mean that this person was royalty. The gold chain was worth a lot of money. And the third highest ruler in the land meant only behind Belshazzar and his absent father who was the true king over Babylon. Verse eight, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale and his nobles were baffled. So King Belshazzar at this point is looking for answers and he offers a grand prize to whoever can give him a solution to this problem. Tell me what those words are. Tell me what was written on the wall. Tell me what it means but they're all confused. They're all baffled. The wisest men in Babylon come in and they cannot explain it. All these men come in and none of them can give a solution. And the text here says that Belshazzar became even more worried, even more pale, even more terrified. We didn't read this part of it, but eventually word gets to the queen mother, Belshazzar's mom. Word gets to her about what is happening. And specifically, the word that gets to her is this, Belshazzar is afraid. Belshazzar looks weak in front of these nobles. And so, the queen mother comes marching into the party, and she scolds her son, get it together. Get your stuff together and fast. Fast. You look weak in front of these nobles. We've got invading armies outside of these walls. You've got to look confident and strong. And then she says to Belshazzar, when Nebuchadnezzar was ruling, there was a man named Daniel. Daniel was a slave brought from Jerusalem, but Daniel was considered to be wise. Daniel interpreted dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. You need answers, go and call Daniel. Get Daniel, bring Daniel in. Scene four is exactly that. In scene four, we see the defiance of Belshazzar. Here's what we read. So Daniel was brought before the king and the king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the exiles or one of the slaves my father brought, my father the king brought from Judah? Here's what's important to note. This would be the point that you think that Belshazzar would have a whole lot of humility. There is this thing that has happened. A disembodied hand has written on the wall that does not happen every day. And it happened in the midst of what was clearly a a sin even for someone from Babylon. To use the sacred items from some other group was known to be a sin. Belshazzar does that. This hand writes on the wall. He knows he's done wrong. You would think at this point that he would humble himself. You would think at this point that he would say, whatever it is that God is trying to tell me, I am absolutely ready to listen. But instead, his neck is stiff, and he regains his pride, and he says to Daniel, hey, aren't you just a slave that my father Nebuchadnezzar brought back from Jerusalem? Verse 14, I have heard, I have heard, not I know, I have heard, it's a rumor. I don't know if it's true. It's hard for me to believe, but I have heard That the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. Now, Daniel, you need to know the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. The wisest men in Babylon, our powerful empire, could not explain this, Daniel. But maybe, perhaps, you could do something. Then he continues. Now, I have heard, I have heard these rumors that you are able to give interpretations. And I've heard, again, whether it's true or not, I don't know, that you can solve difficult problems. If, if this is true, If you can actually do this, what no one else has been able to do, if you can do this and you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. The same promise I made to everyone else earlier. Again, we did not read this part of the passage, but Daniel does two things. One is he says to Belshazzar, you can keep your gifts for yourself or you can give them to somebody else. I don't care. Basically, they are meaningless. You made me the third highest ruler in the land, that will mean nothing in just a short amount of time. So number one, keep your gifts. Give them to somebody else. Number two, he gives Belshazzar a history lesson. And he points back to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, there was a time that Nebuchadnezzar got too big for his britches. He became proud. He thought he was greater than God himself. And God had to humble him. And God did. But when God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, when he brought judgment, when he put a big flashing warning sign into Nebuchadnezzar's life, Nebuchadnezzar repented. And he turned back to God. And he acknowledged his his humility before the Lord. But Belshazzar, you have not done that. Belshazzar, you have retained your pride and your arrogance before the Lord. God has sent a major warning to you. Disembodied hand, writing on the wall. It scared you. Yet you have not observed that flashing yellow light, and you have not humbled yourself before God. Therefore, Belshazzar, here's what's coming. Scene five, the judgment. Here's what Daniel says to him. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many tekel parson. Now, by the way, that is Aramaic. Why those Uh, Wise men of Babylon could not read that. We don't know whether it was just clouded over for some reason or what the writer meant was they could read the words, but they didn't have an understanding of what the words meant. This is simply Aramaic. And here's what Daniel says. Here's what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. So many in Aramaic means numbered. Here it's twice, numbered, numbered. Showing that this was the divine ordination that would not be chained, that bells changed, that Belshazzar had so offended God that this was definitely going to happen. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Tekel simply means weighed. Some translations say you have been found lacking. You've been found lacking in moral character because of these actions. Perez, which is the plural of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Not divided among the Medes and the Persians, but divided from you, separated from you. In other words, God is ripping the kingdom out of your hands. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the land. All actions that were meaningless why because of the next verse the next scene in Daniel 5 which was the end notice what the writer tells us that very night Belshazzar king of the Babylonians was slain and Darius the me took over the kingdom at the age of 62 Now, fortunately, there has been a lot written uh, about the fall of Babylon. It was such a significant event. Several Greek historians wrote about this. Uh, In fact, we're able to actually know the date of when this happened. October 12th, 539 is when this event happened. Meaning on October 11th, 539, they were having a big party in the palace, not knowing that the next day they would be dead. Here's what these Greek writers tell us happened. That the military commander of the Medo-Persian Empire figured out a way to divert the Euphrates River and it lowered the water level enough that soldiers were able to get underneath the walls of Babylon and while they were having the big party, while they were getting drunk, while all of this was taking place, soldiers like ants were swarming into the city And soon afterwards, Belshazzar would be dead, the Babylonians would be slaughtered, and Darius would reign over that city. Uh, Volumes have been written about this. The Bible summarizes it well. Belshazzar was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom. There's this phrase that we use in our culture. You've heard it before. It's called the handwriting on the wall. Uh, We'll use it to say, well, this is a sign that, that this definite thing is coming. Like, you know, she could see the handwriting on the wall that she was about to get fired, so she went ahead and started looking for other jobs. Or he could see the handwriting on the wall that she was going to dump him, and, and so he went ahead and broke up with her instead. And we use that phrase to mean that something is definitely coming. but That's not the best way to use the phrase. If we want to be true to scripture, the handwriting on the wall is a warning. It it is a big yellow flashing light from God saying, quit, repent, turn around, quit going down that path. Why? Because God does not want you to destroy your life. And he loves you so much that he will give these big signs, sometimes painful signs, before we ultimately destroy our lives. I was at a conference this past week, and one of the pastors at the conference was talking about his church and some problems that he had in his church years ago, and he said there was this one man in the church who just had it as his mission to destroy the church. Said he would come to business meetings, he would cause problems, he sowed dissension amongst the church all the time, told lies about the pastor and about other leaders in the church said it was so bad that he would actually call the local news media and he would say to the news media, you need to come to the business meeting at so-and-so church tonight. There's gonna be a lot of drama there. And then he would come to the meeting and he would create the drama, just trying to get bad press for the church. And people came and they warned him and they warned him and they said, you've gotta quit and you've gotta stop this. And so finally someone asked, what did you do? Did you enact church discipline? Did you kick him out of the church? The pastor said, I didn't have to. He died. God took his life and removed him from that situation. There are times that God who loves us, who is so gracious, who does not want us to destroy our lives, will put up these warning signs and will flash these bright yellow lights at us to keep us from going down the dangerous path of sin and reaping the results of sowing that kind of lifestyle. When God does that, the wisest thing we can do is to heed those warnings.